Well, hey, good morning to you. If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. If you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it? We are in the middle of a study of the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, and I'd like you to grab it. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the, in the pew right in front of you, a black one. Uh, if you don't have one, take that, read it, and come on back and get another one when you give that to someone else. Uh, so our goal, uh, as Steve has said, as a church is to help you take your next step with Christ. And that means uh, knowing him, loving him, and serving him uh, as we encounter him in the word of God. So that's what we're going to do here this morning. We're going to spend time in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So go ahead and turn there. Uh, as you're turning, <clears throat> I want to tell you where we've been here in our study of 2 Corinthians. This is the middle of Paul's, uh, perhaps Paul at his most sarcastic, his most ironic. Uh, we began last week, if you look at 2 Corinthians 11, just at verse 1 there with me for a second, where Paul says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Uh, Paul's request in this section of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is uh, for the church by any means possible to listen to Paul. And what Paul is doing in this section here is called Paul's fool's speech. What Paul is doing in this fool's speech is engaging the church on a level that they can understand. You ever have to talk to your kids at a level that they have to understand? That you can't use, you know, big words or great examples or illustrations that they don't understand. You've got to come down to their level to communicate in a way that they understand you. Well, this is what Paul is doing. This is a church that uh, should have completely devoted themselves to the one true apostle and to his teaching. But Paul is facing a church that, it, that at this point has a vast majority of people who have come back and repented of their refusal to listen to him. And Paul is dealing with what's called an unrepentant minority in the church that is still believing in and following these false apostles. So we began Paul's fool's speech last week looking at Paul talking about his heart, that he shares this anxiety and worry for the church that they might be deceived into following another Christ. In fact, he lays out this... this um, the doctrine of these false apostles, where we said this is the doctrinal statement of these false apostles who find their way into the church and preach a different Jesus according to a different spirit with a different gospel that doesn't save anybody. And then by the end of our time last week, Paul went really toe-to-toe -to -toe with them in the ring where he said, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to go about my ministry. I'm going to use this method of continuing to preach the free gospel of grace and refusing to charge you a dime so that I might undermine the claim of these false apostles who would like to say that we and Paul work on the same terms. Now, you remember, I used the illustration of stolen valor. You remember that a couple weeks ago? Where stolen valor is a federal offense where people will wear the ribbons of valor, the ribbons of um, participation in combat, having never experienced combat. And it's a federally... Um, Char was federally uh, prosecuted offense for people to wear the colors of those military men and women who gave their blood, sweat, and tears in the line of fire for our country. Well, what Paul is going to do here, he, he already has begun to uproot the motivations of money, right? Because money has been a problem all the way through this, this book. 
These false teachers have peddled the gospel. They've tried to make sure that people would support their false teaching ministry. And Paul now cuts them out at the knees and said, I'm not going to charge. But what Paul is going to do today is bear the, the marks of what it cost him to be an apostle. And he's not just going to talk about wearing the ribbons. He's going to say, I've got the scars. I've got the marks of being in combat. At the end of the book of Galatians, Paul will tell the Galatian church, let nobody cause me trouble, for I bear in my body literally the brands of Christ. It's the word stigma. It's the evidence of Paul's apostleship, of him bearing the cost of walking in the pathway of Jesus Christ. So here's what we're going to look at today. This fool's speech and really the remainder of this chapter in 2 Corinthians 11, is going to serve to distance Paul again from the false teachers. He's going to give evidence as he boasts of something that uh, is really his own weakness and his own inability in the Christian ministry. And he's going to boast in such a way to make a division between himself and the false apostles. And what he's going to say by the end is, they won't suffer for you. They won't walk the pathways that I have walked. In fact, I'm a far better apostle than they are because of what it cost me to bring you the gospel. This text is not a hard text to teach. It's not necessarily a hard text to understand even, but it's an incredibly hard text to apply. Uh, I love talking about my victories. When you think about your life in terms of the win-loss column, we all want to put the wins on our resume, don't we? You don't want to go into a job interview talking about how many times you failed in your previous job, right? That is unwise. But what Paul is going to do here, in a remarkably uh, disconcerting way, is show us how committed I am and how committed we are to our own glory. Because that's a temptation for all of us. I love me some me, don't you? You ought to love you some you. You love you, and I love me. And when we read a list of what it cost Paul to be an apostle, we all get real uncomfortable. Because if we're honest, none of us move toward suffering. None of us move toward difficulty. We all have a tendency to move toward comfort, security, peace, safety. And what Paul is going to boast in is how much it cost him to be an apostle. So that's where we're headed. Be encouraged if you're not already. That's what this text is about. Let's pray for uh, God's grace to make it clear to us uh, what he wants to say to us as a church. Father in heaven, for these few minutes as we look into your word, would you give us um, the spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ, to understand what you would say to us. Father, we pause and confess that none of us like suffering. None of us move toward suffering. In fact, suffering, if anything else, causes us to be uncertain of your love and concern for us. It causes us to question if we're doing the right things, if you really love us, if you have a plan, if you're in control. And Father, we ask for your grace for these few minutes to look into this section of Scripture to see perhaps some things about ourselves that we don't want to look at, to see some things about Christ that perhaps we've never heard before and that you might teach us and disciple us as we look into your word here this morning. May the words of our mouths and meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians. I, I showed you verse 1. I want you to hop down to verse 16 if you're not there. So turn one page over wherever you are, and we're going to start in 16 and go to about verse 30 here this morning. You see the heading over that passage is Paul's sufferings as an apostle. Paul closed our time last, uh, last week saying that these false apostles masquerade just like Satan's servants do. And just like Satan does, he masquerades as an angel of light. So Paul went right at the heart of who these false apostles were. And now he's going to turn the, the attention to himself and show you uh, how he himself is going to boast, though he doesn't want to do it. Look at verse 16. I repeat, let no one think me foolish. This is Paul's appeal to the church. Paul wants the heart of the church to be open to him. Remember that? He's, he's asked the church to pay attention to him, to open wide their hearts towards Paul as Paul has opened wide his heart toward them. He is consistent in his service and his care and love and concern for this church about where they stand and whether or not they're laboring in vain and whether or not they're being deceived. And Paul pleads with this church, don't blow me off. Put up with me, bear with me for just a minute that I might step into proving that I really love you the way I do. And then he finishes the verse saying that if you do, accept me as a fool so that I may boast a little. You, have you ever read uh, Proverbs 26? Proverbs 26 says, um, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Is that right? Did I get that wrong? Don't answer a fool. Oh, yeah, it's don't answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself, right? Don't get dragged into dumb conversations. But answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. This church has a problem with the world's values creeping into the church. You remember that, right? All through the course of this book, the Corinthian church is consistently harassed by the fact that they love the world. They love the world's values, they love the world's standards, they love the world's metrics. And that's one of the points of accusation with the Apostle Paul. He's not impressive, he's not tall, he's not fast, he's not strong, he can't bench press. He can't throw a spiral, he can't hit the out route, he can't hit the deep three, he can't do any of that stuff. He's not an impressive individual. And the church just goes right along with the accusations against Paul. But Paul here is going to address them on their terms. He's going to say, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. Now, Paul's boast is going to be completely against what you would imagine a boast would be because any of us, when we boast, want to boast in our victories. We want to boast in our successes. And Paul is going to ruin that entire line of thinking. And by doing so, expose something about all of our hearts that, is, uh, that we need to hear. Verse 17. The verse 17 and 18 are a bit of a parenthesis in the way that Paul goes about his argument. Verse 17 goes like this. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say, not as the Lord would, but as a fool. I'm not talking as Jesus would talk. Jesus never boasted during his time on earth, right? He, but Paul uh, uh, pleads with this church earlier in chapter 10 by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Please listen to me. And Paul says, I'm about to do something that Jesus didn't do. And even I'm about to do something that doesn't characterize the people of God and shouldn't characterize the people of God. Not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. He'll say later on in the next couple chapters, he'll rebuke the church because they actually backed him into a corner. Paul has been backed into a corner by 
these false apostles who continue to critique his ministry, saying he says one thing, he does another. He's weak and he's timid when he's in person, but he's strong and bold when he's away. He walks by the flesh. He's not impressive. He's got a cheap, worthless gospel. His speaking gifts aren't that impressive. And now Paul is backed into the corner of the ring and he's going to come out swinging and he's going to do it in a way, not that is impressive, but in a way that subverts all of the boasts of the false apostles. I too will boast. Verse 19, for you gladly bear with fools being wise yourself. Can you, if you want to put a note down, put down sarcasm right there. Oh, don't you love that an apostle is sarcastic? That just warms my heart. I like that sarcasm is in the Bible. Paul says, you gladly bear with fools. Now, if you remember, this is a problem for this church. This church has been um, too tolerant. They've been too open-minded. They let too many people in the pulpit with questionable doctrine. They've opened their arms and embraced those teachers who come in with a gospel that does not say validated by a spirit that does not point to Christ and a gospel of message of salvation that doesn't reconcile anybody to God. And the church goes, oh, that's good. Let's bring those guys in. Let's have them in for a retreat. Let's, let's invite them to speak again. And Paul says, you gladly bear with. You gladly put up with these individuals in your midst who want to do you deliberate spiritual harm. But note how Paul says that they view themselves. If you want a, a, a contrast to this, read 1 Corinthians 4 sometimes where this church takes to itself all of these worldly accolades and all of these worldly adjectives to declare that they are wise and they are kings and they are accomplished and they are uh, insightful. And Paul says, that's not like us. We, we're like the refuse of the world. We're the dregs of all things. God has put us on display at the end of the caravan of his glory and victory like prisoners. So Paul says, you gladly bear with fools... And if you would think me a fool just for a minute, allow me to boast too. Look at, he goes on to verse 20. For you bear it if someone, now what you're going to see here, last week we saw the doctrinal statement of the false teachers. Remember that? Different Jesus, different spirit, different gospel. Paul's not going to look so much at their doctrinal teaching here. What Paul is going to do is show you that these false teachers will come into the church and they will have an effect on people. What you're going to see in these next few, just kind of four or five phrases is the kind of people the false teachers are. And it doesn't matter so much what they say. What Paul is going to show you is how they are experienced. How would you experience a false teacher? Well, Paul said last week they masquerade as servants of righteousness. They come in and they look a certain way. But what is the effect going to be? Not so much their words, but their deeds. How do they act in the church? What are going to be the behaviors that characterize false doctrine? For you bear it. You put up with it. If someone makes slaves of you. What a graphic way to describe false teachers. You put up with these false teachers coming into your midst and dictating the relationship between you and them as one of master and slave. Now that should worry you with false teaching, right? Jesus all throughout his ministry talks about beware of the Gentiles who lord it over those in their care. You remember that? 
Paul uses something similar in Galatians 2. He says this in talking about false brothers. There's a passage in Galatians 2 that gives you another picture of these false brothers who come into the Galatian churches. Galatians 2.4 says this, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Let me say this, when false teaching takes root in the church, it poisons the authority structure of the church. It creates a dynamic where there are those in charge and those who follow, and those who follow become slaves of those who are in charge. Can that ever be a problem? That individuals in leadership can abuse the position of leadership and take advantage of those that they are supposed to serve. Amen? Right? That's out there. Is there any conversation about that in our culture today? About leaders fleecing those that they ought to serve? Leaders abusing those who are in their care? Well, where does it come from? It comes from a satanic false gospel. It comes from false doctrine that infiltrates the church and says, the sheep are for you, not the sheep are Christ's. Here's the next one. If someone makes slaves of, slaves of you, you bear it. You put up with it. If someone devours you, you put up with it. Mark 12, almost an exactly uh, identical term Jesus uses of the false teachers in his own day. Mark 12, 38, in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at the feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater commendation. What did the false teachers need for their ministry to continue? They needed money. They needed to fleece the church. They needed to make sure that the people of God would give them money to validate and strengthen and embolden their ministry. So Paul says earlier in this, in this book, we aren't those who peddle the word of God. We aren't those who need validation of our ministry by your financial contribution to us. Remember chapters 8 through 10? What Paul did? What did Paul do in raising money? He didn't say give me money. He said participate in what God is doing in the lives of other Christians. Let me uh, encourage you to give to what God is doing over here. Did Paul take a dime from the Corinthian church? Not a dime. So Paul says you gladly put up with those who devour you who ruin you financially. Number three, you gladly put up, you bear with those who take advantage of you. you know, the word take advantage is literally a word to take in hand. It's used in hunting and fishing contexts of the bait that entraps the prey. So not only are these false teachers... Uh, number one, making slaves of them. Not only are they fleecing the congregation and stealing their money, number three, they're cunning and they're crafty. They're manipulating the church to follow after them. Number four, they put on airs, which literally means to exalt oneself. 
Now, Paul says when they compare or classify themselves with one another, they're without understanding. But does that mean it doesn't happen in the church? Nope. It means even in the church, there's problems with people exalting themselves into positions of leadership. And finally, one of the most graphic that probably sums up, it may actually be something that happens as something that isn't even metaphorical, but something that happens in the context of the church is that they strike you in the face. What would you have to believe to put up with somebody hitting you in the face? Consider that. Consider how deceived you would have to be for a spiritual leader to strike you in the face and you to go, this is, this is good. No, I like this. This is a great place. I'm going to invite my family and friends to this church. He comes and he hits me every week. Every week he hits me in the face. It's just part of it. You got to understand it. We're Christians. That's what we do here. This is amazing. The power that false teaching has in the life of the church. It is devastating to the church. Horrendous. But what's amazing is Paul is not rebuking the false teachers. Do you know that? Who is he rebuking? You know, there's a lot of conversation in our culture in terms of spiritual leaders who fall. So one of the big ones now with spiritual leaders is that they exhibit a domineering spirit. They, they exhibit a spirit of leadership which is never able to be checked, never able to be rebuked. And they're allowed because of their platform to inflict spiritual harm upon, upon God's people. And Paul doesn't even point that out. He's already dealt with the effects of false teaching in our, in, in our time together last week, right? He said their ends will correspond with their deeds. Who is he rebuking here though? Here, he's rebuking the church. He's saying, you put up with the wrong people. You let in the wrong leaders. Now, why does the church do this? Why does the church welcome bad leaders that take advantage of them, that exalt themselves, that put themselves on a pedestal, that create a master-slave dynamic in their leadership? that strike the sheep in the face. And the reason is that the values of the world have infiltrated the church. The world has now come into the church to where we will evaluate individual leaders not based upon their character, but based upon their platform. Not based upon their spiritual life, but based upon their success. And when a church invites that into its midst, the church will inevitably suffer. Inevitably. It will cost the church. Because the church has an obligation. You know what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1. If we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel different than the one you, should, you have received. Let him be what? Accursed. I preached it straight down the line says Paul. But if an angel shows up, some spiritual being who tries to fleece you and take you away from the one true gospel that you've received, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, let him be accursed. It's the church's job to guard the pulpit. It's the church's job to hold the pulpit, to hold the elders, to hold the people, one another, to the scriptural standards of the men and women that we are supposed to be. That's part of our job with each other. 
So not only is this church too tolerant, doctrinally speaking, but this church is too, do- too um, tolerant, behaviorally speaking. We just allow these individuals in the church. You know what's interesting? Look at, uh, keep your finger there. there um, we got time for this? Plenty of time, plenty of time. What, what are we done, 12.30? Look at, uh, flip back to 2 Corinthians 4. Remember 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, uh, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Remember that? Paul speaks about uh, spiritual warfare happening. He's talking about it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, but Paul says something fascinating to me in verse, in chapter 4 about himself. It's about how he views himself. If this church is letting in these false apostles, letting in these false teachers to make slaves of you, take advantage of you, exalt themselves, hit you in the face, take your money, one of the things we have to wrestle with is how a true spiritual leader views themselves. Would you agree that Paul is a true spiritual leader? Say yes. He is. He's a true spiritual leader. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's the spiritual warfare happening in a culture. Verse 5. For what we proclaim is what? It's not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. What do the false apostles do? They lord it over. What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Well, Paul, how do you view them? Uh, view yourself with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake? How does Paul the apostle, anointed and called by Jesus Christ, view himself in the context of the church as merely a servant? What can I do to help you grow and take your next step with Jesus Christ? I think Paul would say that in the context of our church. What can I do to serve you, to encourage you, to build you up so that one day you may boast of me as I boasted in you? Now come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So Paul says, you put up with these false teachers. And look at what he says in verse 21. This is great. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. I wasn't strong enough to hit you in the face. I apologize. I wasn't courageous enough to ask for your money for my ministry because I have all of these other individuals who are trying to get your money and I won't be the one to lump myself in with them. I'm going to stand distinct, so I'm not going to ask for your money. I was too weak for that. To my shame, feel the sarcasm? I'm embarrassed that I was too weak to abuse you and to make slaves of you. But whenever anyone else dares to boast of, Parenthetically speaking, I'm speaking as a fool now. I also dare to boast of that. Now, there are going to be two uh, metrics that the false teachers will use. Really three. We'll look at the third one next week. But one is going to be their Jewishness, and two are going to be their hard work, their accomplishments for Jesus Christ. And we'll just look at two today. But the next one, their visions and revelations, Paul will talk about next week. But here's the first one that he'll show up in verse, he'll explain in verse 22. Are they Hebrews? 
Hebrews uh, is used in the New Testament about three times to talk about people who have uh, descent and uh, national kind of heritage, true Palestinian Jews. At this time, there were Jews in Jerusalem, Judea, Israel, Palestine, and there were Jews in what's called the diaspora, which means the Jews that have been scattered out throughout uh, the different lands. And the diaspora Jews would speak Greek as their first language. Paul says, I spoke both Hebrew and Greek. I was trained in the finest seminaries under the best leaders. Are they Hebrews? So am I. This becomes one of Paul's boasts in Philippians chapter 3 in talking about the things that according to the flesh would, give, would credit him. And here he's putting himself on the same standard as these false apostles. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? Israelites has to do with their national and cultural cultic heritage. Paul in Romans says that they are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So Paul looks to not just his familial heritage, but his ethnic heritage and being a part of the people of God. And then he says, are they offspring of Abraham? Are they ones that would inherit the promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? Paul says, so am I. So it seems that the accusation is that Paul isn't as Jewish as he could be. Now, if you read Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was trained in the best schools. I had the best heritage. You could trace my family lineage back to some of the first 12 tribes. So Paul says, if you're going to come at me in terms of my ethnicity and my heritage, I stand on the same foundation that they do. And then he's going to pivot. Now he's going to look at something else in terms of their accomplishments. Look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? Now, would you agree that if you're a servant of Christ, that Christ is the most important thing to you. If you're a servant, remember when Jesus says you can't serve God and money, right? They're diametrically opposed. For one will love one master and hate the other, or he'll be devoted to one and hate the other. Remember that? So servanthood for Paul, servanthood for Christians, has to do with a singular point of motivation, so Paul says, if they are servants of Christ, if they're going to claim Christ as their north star, if their ministry is going to be characterized by faithfulness to Jesus Christ, then I'll step into it with them. We'll go toe-to-toe on who's a better servant of Christ. Verse 23, I'm a better one. Well, what makes you a better servant of Christ? Isn't that the question? And Paul even says, I'm talking like a madman. Crazy people don't talk like this. Paul says, I'm not trying to compare myself against them. I'm not trying to compare worldly accolades. But I want to show you what it means to be a servant of Christ. Because we need a standard, don't we? Can anybody be a servant of Christ? Is there, is, it, does, can we just throw out, I'm a servant of Christ, and have no way to distinguish whose lives are really Christian? Do we have any standard, any examples that we might follow? Paul tells Timothy, you followed my aim in life. 
Well, what's Paul's ambition? What, what's Paul's aim? Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. What's remarkable about Paul's boast is that he won't boast in numbers of churches planted. He won't boast in number of baptisms he did. He won't boast in the number of people who know his name. He won't boast in the spiritual fruit that's been accomplished through his ministry, though there has been. Everything that Paul is going to boast in is sort of an anti-triumphal kind of boast. I refuse. I will discipline myself to talk about what ministry cost me. Now, you're, you're meant to read this and this just wash over you. 24 to 27. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. You know, that's corporal punishment for the Jewish people. The Jews would punish by a flogging with three pieces of leather that would be uh, snapped across the back of those uh, who were experiencing this consequence, this punishment. So that the actual number of strikes would be 13. Three, six, nine, you can do the math, you get it. Paul gets to 39. How many times did he do it? Five times. Five times he experienced the consequences of preaching for Christ in the Jewish context. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. That's the Roman punishment. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift in the sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Excuse me. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Don't you hate it when you got traffic on the way to work? Don't you hate it when the power goes out for an hour? And you're like, where is the God of heaven and earth? I have been abandoned. I mean, we laugh. Don't we all feel this? When's the last time you were in danger from robbers? Have you ever been in danger from robbers? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You know, there's only one shipwreck in the book of Acts that's recorded. It's the end of the book of Acts, which means at this point, up to this point, Paul has experienced this, and it's not even recorded in the book of Acts. The singular stoning from Paul is because people showed up and stirred a mob up so badly that they, that they stoned him, drug him outside of the city. He woke up and went back into the city saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So you read this and you just, gosh, you feel a little embarrassed, don't you? You feel a little bit like, what in the world causes Paul to boast like this? What in the world makes Paul willing to go through this? Now, all of these up to this point are temporary things that Paul has experienced. It doesn't seem he's experiencing them right at the moment. He just catalogs his suffering. You know, when I face suffering, there's, 
no greater impulse in my heart than to ask God, what are you doing? God, where are you? Why are we experiencing this? This doesn't make sense. Why are we going through this? Does that ever happen to you? When you face difficulty, isn't the immediate question, what is happening in this world to me? And Paul says those temporary things happen. But look at verse 28. And apart from all the other things, apart from the things I don't even, I'm not even going to spend time mentioning, which means there's more than the catalog Paul has here. There's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is the thing that's unrelenting for Paul. This is the thing that when he goes to bed, it's there. It's the thing that when he wakes up, is there. It's the thing that captures his attention, his affection, his prayers, his worry, his anxiety in his heart is how are these people doing? Have I labored in vain? Have they been deceived away from following Jesus Christ? Have they failed to cling to and hold to this grace in which we stand? Have they believed false teachers who make slaves of them and take their money and abuse them and strike them in the face? This haunts Paul. His heart is constantly consumed and caring about the people of God. He explains it like this in the next verse, verse 29. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who in the, see, for Paul, the church isn't just made up of a corporate group of people. There are individuals in the church. And if you are in spiritual leadership, if you are the mom and the dad of a family, you care about the individuals that God has entrusted to you. You would be terrible parents if you didn't, right? All of our kids have peculiar challenges and difficulties where sometimes they're weak and sometimes they're strong. Paul feels that too in the church. There are people in this room right now who feel weak and at the end of themselves. There are people right now who face difficulty and hardship and Paul's heart goes out to them and that's what a good spiritual leader does. When we as elders gather together and we'll email a group of members in our churches, we'll pause and we'll, we'll ask God for grace to be shown in their life and we will pray that God would make them strong that God would use people around them, that God would use circumstances, his word, the encouragement of other brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray for those who are weak. Our hearts go out to them. And Paul says, I feel that daily. Not only that, who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Who is made to stumble? Remember when Jesus talks about uh, temptations are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better if he had a millstone tied around his head and thrown into the depths of the sea. And Paul says when people fall, when people are deceived, when people are discouraged, when people believe false doctrine, when people enter into relationships with teachers that abuse them, you know what the word is indignant? It literally means to burn. Paul says I'm fired up. It bothers me. That people are deceived in these churches. I, uh, <clears throat> there are a couple things that when I talk to my kids, I, I have like little phrases that I use when my kids are, are little. I say, we obey right away because it rhymes and it's easy and it's easy to chant and dance around the kitchen and, you know, make the kids laugh about it. 
I try to come up with these things for my kids to help them kind of put something in their brain that helps them understand the points that we are trying to get them to believe in, to trust, to understand. We talk about God, who he is, and one of the ones I use about self-control is that leaders are fast. Now, it's an acronym, F-A-S-T, and it's not, it's a great acronym. I made it up and I said, here's what leaders do. And it's really a a mnemonic to help them remember what self-control is about. I don't want them just to have self-control of their hands. Leaders are fast. They have self-control over their feelings, their actions, their speaking, their thinking. Their feelings, their actions, their speaking, their thinking. And we talk about that and we laugh about that. And that's the thing we use to talk about self-control. I also have another phrase that I use about leadership. And I talk to my kids about leadership because they're going to be in lots of different contexts Uh, with friends, on sports teams, in classrooms, all sorts of places, and I tell them, there's one particular thing that I think characterizes a leader, and it comes from this kind of concept that Paul is showing us here in this passage. I said, if you're going to be a leader in a context, in a classroom, or on a sports team, or with other individuals you play with, or kids who are in the neighborhood, whatever it is, if you're going to be a leader, here's what leaders do. Leaders look out for the little ones. Now, I have kids ranging from about to be 12 all the way down to three. And one of the things in our family is we don't just compromise the three-year-old for the sake of what the 12-year-old wants to do. Amen? We don't run the three-year-old into the ground because the 12-year-old wants to do something fun that 12-year-olds do. So I constantly am talking to my kids about, here's what leaders do. Leaders aren't the fastest. They're not the strongest. They're not the smartest. They They not necessarily have the best gifts. They're not the most popular necessarily. But if you want to be a leader, I want you to look out for the people who are in your classroom, on the field, on your team, who don't have the strength like the other kids. And I want you to use your leadership ability to look out for those who can't look out for themselves. Because have you found out that, now I had lots of, I haven't always been 6'4", 240. Okay? There was a time when I was 6'3", about 129. (laughs) Now you look and go, ah, this guy has never dealt with bullies. I had lots of bullying experiences. And when I see bullying, do you believe that kids can be carnivores? When I see it, it gets in my chest and it doesn't make me happy. So I tell my kids, you look out for the little ones. Well, who is that? The ones with no social power, the ones with no financial power, the ones who aren't the fastest on the team, the ones who aren't the most popular, the ones who have a hard time getting the the words out when they're trying to speak. And what Paul says is, I look out for the little ones. Who's weak and I'm not weak? Who's weak and I don't feel it? Who's deceived and I don't burn with indignation? Now, are you seeing how much Paul loves this church? Are you seeing how much he cares? That his heart is invested. He's stirred up about the right things. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Why? Why does Paul do this? Why does Paul list how much hardship he's experienced? Why does Paul show them what it cost him? 
That's what you've got to wrestle with. Why does Paul do this? If he's backed into a corner, the thing that he comes out boasting is not how powerful he is and how insightful he is, but he says, I'm going to tell you what it costs. Then what Paul is doing here is showing you what matters to him. He's showing you, now I said this last week, would you agree that if you love something, you'll suffer for it? Amen? If you love something, you'll suffer for it. We're going to stop here in 2 Corinthians. I want want you to go back with me to Acts chapter 20. Commentators, when they look at Paul's life up to this point, they go, everything that happened to Paul up to this point precedes or has happened prior to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, Paul shows up and he calls the Ephesian elders together. And when he calls these elders together, he talks about his life. He talks about who he is and what he has done. And some of it mirrors what you see here in Acts, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink back. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Here's the apostle who's been shipwrecked three times. Here's the apostle who's had 39 lashes times five. Here's the apostle who's been beaten with rods. Here's the apostle who's been in exposure and cold and difficulty. And the thing that when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you've got to go, what is the pulsing heart of the apostle? What drives this individual to be unstoppable in his faithfulness to Jesus Christ? And when I read this, I'm exposed myself because I I wonder, would I have the same dedication to Jesus Christ that Paul has? And I've got to ask the question, what would free me from fearing suffering? What would so capture my attention and my affections that I will put up with what Paul put up with? That I will serve the people of God in such a way that they matter more to me than my comfort. And when Paul talks to these spiritual leaders, he says, elders, listen up. Here's who I was among you. Here's how I taught you. And now I'm getting ready to go to Jerusalem. Verse 22, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. That means the Spirit of God is leading me, right? The Spirit of God is walking my steps, step by step by step to Jerusalem. Verse 23, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, that imprisonment and afflictions await me. What does he put up with? But all of what we've seen in 2 Corinthians 11, and now the Holy Spirit says, you're going this way. What's going to happen? Uh, prison and torture. I thought I was getting led by the Spirit. Oh, you are. Where am I getting led? Affliction, torture, imprisonment. You ever notice when people talk about being led by the Spirit, it's always positive? 
Nobody ever in my course of Christian ministry has ever told me, I don't know, Steve, I'm being led by the Spirit, and the Spirit keeps telling me imprisonment and torture awaits me. Never. It's always, you know what the Spirit of God says, I'm going to make a million dollars next year. You know what the Spirit of God says, I'm going to get that raise. You know what the Spirit of God says, success, vindication, comfort, peaceful, security. And Paul says, here's what the Spirit of God says to me. Here's how the Spirit of God is leading me constraining me step by step by step. Imprisonment, torture, pain. Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. Do you know what will free you from loving you? Do you know what will free you from giving your life and dedicating your life to your own personal comfort and safety? It's these two words. It's these two words that Paul gives you right here. I don't account my my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only. What is your if only? What's the driving north star of your life that would make you put up with suffering, difficulty, pain, and hardship? What is it? What What if only in your life would allow you to faithfully walk toward Jerusalem, the place that you know will involve imprisonment, torture, hardship, and suffering. See, here's what happens for us when we face suffering. A lot of times we face suffering and we question God, right? We all do this. We all go, God, what are you doing? It hurts down here. And what Paul shows us with his life is that there's something so compelling to the Apostle Paul. Because when we face suffering, the difficulty that we feel is that Jesus doesn't love me the way I love me. Jesus doesn't care about me the way I think Jesus ought to care about me. In fact, I have a much better standard of God's love in my life if God would listen to me and give me things that would validate his love for me. I would get satisfaction, peace, comfort, safety, security, but not Paul. Not Paul. Something for Paul has so captured his heart. It's so taken center stage in his mind that no amount of suffering will dissuade him. No amount of difficulty will distract him. Paul is unstoppable. Do you want to be unstoppable? Do you want suffering not to have its hold in your heart? Do you want this perpetual temptation to vindicate yourself and justify yourself and fight for your victories and make sure everybody knows them? How do we ever get free of that stuff? Can I tell you how? It's the if only here for Paul, but many of us may not be sent overseas. We might not ever experience the suffering that Paul did. But the thing that's taken up residence in Paul's heart and Paul's life is what he says in Galatians 2 verse 20. Because Paul understands, the Corinthian church now understands, when they look at the Apostle Paul, they see a shadow of Jesus Christ, don't they? They see someone who's willing to suffer for them. They see someone who will go through pain for them, where the false teachers never will. The false teachers always treat them like slaves, but nobody becomes their slave. And when Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ... It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
What he does is he steps into the call of Jesus Christ for every Christian. See, when you come to Jesus Christ, you're not going to lose that pesky 10 pounds. You might lose your job. When you come to Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, but life, in many ways, gets a lot harder for you. Amen, Christians? There are things that make you uncomfortable, that all of a sudden you become a sojourner in this world, where this world is not your home, and all of your dreams aren't going to be realized, and you might get cancer, and you might die early. You might experience the consequences of walking with Jesus in a world that does not love him, serve him, obey him, or worship him. And when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, he says, this is the pathway of every Christian. Not every Christian is going to suffer like Paul, but every Christian will suffer. Paul tells Timothy, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is the curriculum. But then, in Galatians 2, Paul says, but this life, I live by faith, and the Son of God... And this is important because this is the central North Star of Paul's life. This is the thing that is going to free you from devoting yourself to your own glory. Paul says, this life, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul's suffering is just a shadow of the suffering that Jesus Christ went through for us. So that when we face suffering and we look to Christ and we see his sacrifice on the cross, we see proof and evidence of his love for me. Are you facing suffering and difficulty for your faith right now? Well, it's no greater than what Jesus Christ experienced for you, right? So when we look to Christ and we understand that on the cross, I am exposed not as a victorious individual, but as a sinner. And simultaneously, when I'm exposed as a sinner, I'm able to confess the fact that I am weak. I'm able to confess that I'm not the husband I ought to be. I'm able to confess that I'm not the Christian I ought to be. I'm able to confess things about me that expose me as ashamed. But at the same time, in the same moment, because Jesus died on the cross for me, it demonstrates his absolute, powerful, unstoppable, forgiving love for me. So that my suffering now can be transformed because suffering can't take away anything that I have in Jesus Christ. Every step of suffering and difficulty that may await me in this life cannot take away the love that Jesus Christ has for me that has been displayed for me on the cross. That is the only thing that's going to uproot the idolatry of self-glory and self-love that we all have. So when Paul says, I will boast in my weaknesses... The thing that he is really doing is what we've already seen back up in chapter 10 where he says, let him who boasts, boast in who? Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Because if Paul boasts in the Lord, he's not boasting in himself, which makes him free to not worry about his weaknesses, but to boast in the fact that Jesus loves me, Jesus died for me, and no suffering can take that away. Father, We are peculiarly dedicated to our own glory. I am even as I stand here. We all confess, Father, as we come to the end of a passage like this, that we are reticent to boast of our weaknesses. We're reticent to boast of our inabilities. 
We're reticent to confess the, the sin that so easily entangles us. And Father, I pray, Father, I pray for our church. I pray for the men and women in this room who right now want to conceal their weaknesses out of fear that they won't be accepted, they won't be loved, they won't be as glorious as they want to be, and that they would accept in the very center of their life the truth that Jesus loves them. That they would accept the truth that Jesus died on the cross for sinners, that he came to seek and to save the lost, of whom we all are lost. So, Father, when we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, I pray for those who are suffering right now in this room, who are uncertain that you're in control, who are uncertain of your care and love and concern, your sovereignty and your providential goodness toward us, that they would meditate on the glory of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. How you pursued us and, and chased us down and forgave our sin and have given evidence of your love for us. Father, may the love of Christ dwell richly in our hearts. Would the beauty of Christ capture our attention and our affections? And would we hear through your word and through your spirit the truth that we are men and women who are loved by Jesus Christ? And would that triumph over our fear of being exposed, over our fear of weakness, our fear of insecurity, our fear of losing the glory that the world promises us? Father, bless us in this endeavor. Only you can do it through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.